growing in God's Word, and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Man may have his standards, man may have his biases, man may have his preferences, man may have his his opinions and his thoughts, and what all about, well, they shouldn't be involved in that, or they shouldn't do this, or I, I ought to be able to do this, or something like that. But God is the only one, because God is all wise, because God does not have a sin nature, He is the only one who has the right to determine what is sin. Have you ever had someone comment on your family resemblance with your child or maybe with your parent? Well, if we are a child of God, shouldn't we resemble Him? A very important spiritual truth. There is a moral, ethical, actionable difference between those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today, Pastor Clay takes up where he left off a couple of weeks ago in 1 John chapter 3 in our series, The Am I Series. As we're making our way through the New Testament letter of 1 John, we're seeing that John was confronting some false notions about what it means to call ourselves a follower of Jesus. Back then, just like today, there were many false teachers that were leading people away from God rather than toward Him. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled by false teachers or false notions or ideas. Don't don't let anyone deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Two weeks ago, we saw in the first part of chapter 3 the reality of whose we are. What an amazing blessing to belong to Christ and be a part of the family of God. In this message, Pastor Clay is going to show us two more important aspects to consider when we consider ourselves children of God. Now, here's Pastor Clay. If you have your Bible with you, open it to 1 John chapter 3. That's where we were uh, two weeks ago. Uh, Kale uh, brought the Word of God uh, last week, and I know he did a, a great job. Hopefully you're here and we're blessed by that. Uh, this week we are back in 1 John chapter 3, and Lord willing, time permitting, we will get all the way through 1 John chapter 3. We covered the first two verses um, two weeks ago, so there's like 22 more verses to go. That doesn't sound good, does it? But I, I'm optimistic that we're going to get there. Are you all optimistic? Yeah. i got to get you all going now. Come on. There you go. First John uh, chapter 3. Can I just remind you, if, if you weren't here, I encourage you, go back and listen to that message. I'm not going into all the details. But two weeks ago, uh, we started with this idea in First uh, John chapter 3. There is a reality of whose we are. And I want to read those verses, verses 1 and 2, one and two of First John chapter 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. In other words, he's saying, hey, look, think about how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. We spent a good bit of time two weeks ago looking at just those two verses and what all it means to this reality, uh, to this reality of being a part of the family of God, this reality of being able to say, hey, I am a child of God. It is an amazing 
thing. And John, is, and, and we got into this two weeks ago, John is blown away. Even after all these years of walking with Jesus and being spiritually mature and, you know, having all the answers in the Bible trivia game, if he if he's, gets to play, having everything, he still, he says, wow, I'm a child of God. It ought to be an exciting thing. It ought to be something that, quite honestly, we never get over. I understand we, we get accustomed to it, and, and the longer we, we're in this relationship, the years that go by, uh, we're comfortable in it. But can I tell you, we should never become uh, a complacent about it. Does that make sense? It's like always going back to that idea, Jesus, that I am a child of God, and what an amazing thing that is for my life. Okay, it's a couple more ideas, though, having to do with this family of God and being a child of God that I want to call to your attention uh, today that I want you guys to take notice of. We're going to read some passages of Scripture. Y'all ready? Okay, there's the reality of whose we are. If you know Christ, you are a child of God. Don't ever get over that. Here's the second idea this morning. Not only is there a reality, but there is a resemblance to whose we are. There's the reality. Hey, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in a right relationship with God because of what Christ has done. Now, John can go into the idea that there is a family resemblance. There should be a family resemblance. We're going to pick it up in verse 3 and read through the first part of verse uh, 10. Listen to what he says now. After starting with this, wow, we're children of God. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Is it just me or does that sound kind of harsh? Right? Right off the bat, here we go. Right off the bat, one of the things that we should notice in this text that I just read is this clear, and I'm going to bring it up on the screen, is this clear distinction between the actions of the children of God and the actions of the children of the devil. There is a clear distinction that John is making here between the actions of the children of God, those who belong to him, and the actions of the children of the devil. Look at verses 7 and 8. Uh, again, I know I just read it, but he says, listen to what he says. Little children, that, that's, that was just a... That's just a term of fondness, and, and dear, John loves these people that he's writing to. Little children, let no one deceive you. Don't be, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled by false teachers or false notions or ideas. Don't, don't let anyone deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned 
from the beginning. John is establishing right here in this section of the text. John is establishing a very important spiritual truth. And that is that there is, there is, a, there is a moral, ethical, actionable difference between those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. Again, look at it, the first part of verse 10, he says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are what? Say it, they're what? Are obvious by this, by what I'm talking about right now, by this, by this moral conduct, by this righteousness or un- unrighteousness, by, by the, the conduct in which people uh, behave in their life, by this, the children of God are obvious and the children of the devil are obvious. And listen, I know that that can be a little scary. What John says here, or at least it ought to be to you, it, it, it was to me, uh, it ought to be a little scary to think, because, let's face it, if, if the children of God do not sin, none of us are children of God because all of us sin, do we not? So it can be a little scary to think of it in, in that respect. When John's talking about not sinning and those who are the children of God, they don't, don't sin. And, and if, if John is saying that, that no sin is the, is the requirement, then none of us are children of God because all of us sin. Listen to me, the secret here. To understanding this text is the little is a little Greek verb called poion, and it's translated in English as what? Practices. Six times in seven verses, John uses this verb. And it is the key to understanding what John is saying. Listen to me. This is important. John is not saying that if you sin, you are not part of the family of God. What John is saying is that. That the one who practices, the one who lives this, this life of sinfulness, this one who, who has this ongoing, and, and listen, he's not, he's not, we'll get to some of this in a minute, but he's not even saying what, you know, well, what sins are you talking about? Sins, sins, things that God would not approve of. That is this one that has this ongoing lifestyle of sinfulness, who practices this with apparently no conviction about what they're doing is wrong. No conviction from the Spirit and no desire to change the practice that they are engaged in. That's what John is talking about. That is the person that he is, that he is considering children of the devil. This person that, not a person that just sins. We know we do, and I'll get to that. But this person that, who is living this life of sinfulness apart from God's will and no desire to move away from, come out of, or change their life. I like my life the way it is. I don't care what God says about this. This is how I feel. This is what I think. Or this is what I enjoy. And this is what I'm going to do. And so John says there's this clear distinction. And, and I know, you know, just, just saying it, it's probably one of y'all are thinking, man, that just seems kind of harsh to call people the children of the devil. It just seems kind of harsh. That's why it's important to understand the, another part or component uh, to this text. Clear distinction between the actions of the children of God and the children of the devil, but also there is a clear connection between sinfulness and lawlessness. And it's important that you see this connection between sinfulness and lawlessness. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Okay, I'm teaching, right? I'm teaching, I know. But stay with me because this is important for you to learn. There's a clear connection between uh, sinfulness and lawlessness. 
Again, verse 4, he says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Okay, you read that text, and my first response is, Okay, well, sin, sinfulness is lawlessness. It's the same thing. And in fact, John says that in that verse that I just read. Sin is lawlessness, right? So why does John seem to make a distinction between them? Why does, why does John call out sinfulness and lawlessness and then say that, that sinfulness is lawlessness? Why, why does he go to the trouble of, of kind of splitting them apart? I'm going to tell you why I think he does. I think it's because sinfulness or sin is not sin to all people in the world in which we live. Now, there may be a sense in which that's always been true, uh, but never has it been more true than the world in which we live in today. In other words, it has been my experience that people like to determine uh, they like to decide for themselves what is a sinful action, what is an immoral action, and what is not an immoral action. And not surprisingly, <laughs> usually the action that they are involved in is one that they have decided is not immoral or is not a sinful practice, at least not for them. Right? And so John establishes this truth that sinfulness is lawlessness. I could, I, 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 might, I might hear that and I might think, well, okay, but, but how come you don't get to, who gets to decide? Because most people don't like it, right? They don't like you to, to, to determine for them what their practice in life, whatever it is, okay? Whatever it is. Don't let your mind just go to the big sins. Whatever it is that, that we, shouldn't, we shouldn't have the, the right to determine what is sin. I, I couldn't agree more. And that's literally how I, how I have it up here. If you like to fill in your blanks. I do not have the right to determine what is sin. I don't. That's why I think John is making this distinction. Between sinfulness and law. He says it's the same thing. But he says sinfulness is lawlessness. Well here's the question. What law is John talking about? He's talking about God's law isn't he? That's the only law he could possibly be talking about. He's talking about God's law. In other words, man may have his standards, may, man may have his biases, man may have his preferences, man may have his, his opinions and his thoughts, and, and what all about, that? well, they shouldn't be involved in that, or they shouldn't do this, or I, I ought to be able to do this, or something like that. But, but God is the only one, because God is all wise, because God does not have a sin nature, he is the only one who has the right to determine what is sin. Doesn't that make sense? I have a sin nature. <gasps> relax, you do too. I have a sin nature, and that sin nature, quite honestly, prevents me from having the ability to discern what is sinful and what is not sinful. I do not have all wisdom as God has, so I don't know all the nuances. I don't know all the, ba I don't know all the reasons that some practice might be sinful and some might not be sinful. I don't know that, but God does. I do not have the right to determine what is sinfulness. Let me give you an example of how God's law and, and using God's standards can differ from man's. At one time, 40 of the 50 states in this country said that it was illegal, it was against the law 
for a uh, black person and a white person to marry. Forty of the 50 states, not just a southern thing, for the record, said that it was against the law to marry someone who was ethnically different from you. Obviously, as you could probably guess, particularly that would be focused on relation between a white person and a black person. Illegal, against the law. But God's law, God's law has no moral standard like that. God's law has nothing to say about that. Quite frankly, I think God could care less about the color of the skin of a husband or a wife. What he cares about is the way they care about each other. What he cares about is the way they love each other. What he cares about is whether their love is, is built on his love. But man, with his preconceived biases and, and preferences and whatever, says this, is, this, this should be against the law. This should be immoral. But God never said that. You see? You see why he's drawing this distinction here? Let me give you another one. And you may or may not like this one as well. Man's law says that a couple can divorce for basically any reason at all. God's law says that you can divorce for two reasons and two reasons only, as best as I understand Scripture. Adultery and abandonment. And if you divorce for any reason other than that, uh, you just fell out of love or, or you couldn't get along or you just decided you like somebody else better or, or whatever the reason. If you divorce, divorce for any reason other than that, the world says that's fine, it's okay. God says it's sin. Now listen to me, I don't say that to make anybody mad or feel guilt or anything like that. All of us have sin, all of us have messed up, all of us have made mistakes, all of us have stuff we could wish we were going to do. God's grace is an amazing, amazing thing that comes to us when we, when we acknowledge our sin and we turn to Him. God restores us, God puts us on the path of life and what we, the, all that we can experience in our life and all that kind of stuff. I don't... I say that so that you understand that man may have his idea of moral standards and moral laws, but it is skewed by his own sinful nature, by his own biases, by his own preferences. And so, no, I do not, you do not, they do not, nobody has the right to determine what is sin. Only God has that right. But I do have the responsibility to declare what is sin, I do have that responsibility because I am adopted into the family, because I have this family resemblance. I what? I should, I should look like he looks. I should act like he la- acts. I should talk like he talks. And that includes, are y'all with me? That includes the willingness to care about people enough to tell them, here's what God's law says about whatever. Here, here's what God's law says. Well, what do you think? Do you think what I'm doing is wrong? Or what do you think about this? Or what do you think? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I think. And it doesn't matter what you think. If there's a God, it only matters what he thinks. So I I have this responsibility to declare this to the world around me. Look the way the Apostle Paul puts it, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Now, you guys are a smart group. I think you understand who ambassadors are, what ambassadors are, what their role is, what they do. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Out of care about people enough to say, listen, I, I, I don't have the right to, to determine for you what is sin and what is not sin. But I have the responsibility to declare to you if something is, is in opposition to God's law and what God has said. That's, that's, what, that's what we have to do. Look at how... Uh, again, the Apostle Paul, look how he says in Romans 8 how 
Much it sounds like what John is saying in here in 1 John chapter 3. He says, so then, brothers, we're not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And he's, he's saying that there's, there's, there's this change going on now that we're in the family of God. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. Isn't he saying the same thing as John says? If you, if you live righteous or unrighteous? Yeah. He doesn't say children of the devil, but it's the same thing. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those led by God's Spirit are who? God's sons, God's children. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. In this world we may suffer, in this world we may have tribulation, specifically because we're a follower of Christ, but specifically because we say there is a moral standard, and here's what God says that it is. But he says because we're in this family, because we're adopted into this family, we take on his characteristics and we begin to act the way he wants us to act. There is a resemblance, there's a family resemblance. You understand what he's saying? There's this family resemblance in our relationship with him. Now, um, I don't, I, I'm not sure if I skipped over blank or not, but let me say this to you. Um, before we, we move on, we're in this, we're adopted into this family relationship, but I need to clarify something about this, this family relationship, okay? If, before we move on to the next thing. And it's in 1 John, it's back in, in verse 3. I want to go back to verse 3. I want to read it to you in just a second. It says this, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There is what I would call, there is what you, what you could call positional purification. Positional purification. In other words, uh, when, when I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I, I was adopted into the family of God. God, in the, in, because of the pure, sinless sacrifice of his son, right? Because you and I are still sinless, sinful, aren't we? You and I still mess up. We're growing in this thing. We're trying to, but, but we're still sinful. But God can see me as part of his family, even though I'm imperfect, even though I am in my life at times impure, God sees me, so to speak, as pure because he sees me through the pure, sinless sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. So positionally, God sees me as pure. Positionally, I am in right relationship with God. Positionally, I am brought into the family of God. And so you could say that purity provides adoption. His purity, Christ's purity, his death on the cross of a sinless, perfect sacrifice provides for me adoption into the family of God so that I can call myself a child of God. I'm a child of God, not because I'm perfect, but because he is perfect. You understand what I'm saying? Everyone who put, fixes their hope on him, on his finished work on the cross. You with me? You with me? Y'all are spread out today. You with me? So this, there's, there's, there's positional purification. It could, because, listen, here's what happens at times in our lives. Man, we mess up. We, 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 we stumble. We, we give in to sin or something. And, and rightfully so, the Spirit can bring conviction to our lives. And part of that can include just this idea of self-loathing. And, oh my gosh, how can I, how, how can I even call myself 
a Christian or follow Jesus. Look at how I acted in that situation or, or I, I did this or I did that. That's when, it's, that's when it's important that we remember that if we are in relationship with him, that man, I am so imperfect, but I know that positionally I, I am, I'm pure because of the finished work of Christ. And that is given to me at the moment of salvation, the moment I trust Christ as my Savior, and it will be mine, adopted into his family, it will be mine throughout all of eternity. So there is this positional purification. But there's also another aspect to this, and that is this. Uh, There is not only positional purification, but there is practical purification. Practical purification. Look at it again, verse 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Since I do belong to him, since I have been adopted into the family, and since his spirit now dwells in me, which is a promise of salvation, the spirit of God dwells in me, he now begins to, how should I put this? Clean up my act. He begins to change me. Angry person, bitter person, gossipy person, jealous person, drunken person, Whatever. He begins to bring this change in me. There begins to be a practical purification to my life. Do you see what, he, what he's saying here? Yes, positionally, you're pure because of what Christ's done. But practically, we got some work to do here. We're, we're filing off the rough edges. We're changing you more into him so that your family resemblance becomes more and more like him. You understand what we're saying? When a baby, listen, I know, I don't, I don't mean to insult anybody here or anything, but when, when, when your baby is born, you know, and, and maybe women are better at this than men are, I'll be honest with you, every time when somebody says, don't you think uh, she looks like, so, don't you think he looks like, and I'm like, it looks like a baby. It looks like a baby. I don't, it looks like a baby. I don't know. But as that baby grows, what, do you, what, what happens? You begin to see those characteristics. You begin to see that resemblance. Wow, boy, that, he looked just like his dad just then when he did that. I say that a lot about Emery with Travis. <laughs> he, 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 she looks just like her mom when she did. The, the family resemblance grows as they mature. Guess what John is saying here? There's this, this, this family resemblance that grows, that matures as we mature in our relationship with him. And so you could say adoption promotes purity. That purity, his purity, provides adoption into the family of God. Now adoption promotes purity in me. Now God is changing me. I am so glad God has to the extent that he has so far and is changing me. I can assure you my wife is glad and I've still got a long ways to go. But I am not the person that I was that those people knew 40 years ago at Cindy's class reunion. I'm pretty sure a couple of them passed out. When they when when uh, they found out I was a pastor now, see it's it's being adopted into this his family now promotes a change in me. God, can I be honest with you? God changed my want to. That's what He does. He changed my want to things I wanted to do before that according to God's lawless God's law were law, lawless acts or were sinful acts. Uh, again, not perfect. We're still struck, but but God began to change those things. He began to take them out of my life. He began to. Where it had some, so, so, so this great thing can happen in our life. We can begin to have victory. If, if, a, person, if a person struggles with, with um, uh, sexual uh, temptation, some, some type of sexual uh, behavior or practice outside the bonds 
of marriage, pornography or uh, whatever it might be. If a person struggles with that, right? And, And it can happen. Being a believer doesn't mean the temptation goes away. Those temptations can still be there. They can still be be very real in our life. But the Spirit of God begins to work and begins to give victory in our lives so that we can begin to move away from some of those practices that God wanted us to move away from. You understand? So that the person can look at their life maybe at some point and say, wow, I can remember how that used to be such a struggle or how I used to give in in this area or how I used used to be so... uh, opposite of what God wanted now, but I can see how God has worked in my life and he's changed me. I'm so grateful that he has. That's, that's, that's what he can do. It's a practical purification. Okay. All right. Let me, um, l- let me give you just the reminder. Uh, I think we read it in a moment, but verse five and six, just so you understand it. So we're all clear on this. He says, you know that Christ appeared in order to take away our sins, not just take them away positionally, but take them away practically. He isn't sinful, and those who live in Christ don't go on sinning. Those who go on sinning haven't seen or known Christ. You can't continue in a, in a pattern or lifestyle opposite from what God wants for you, and at the same time say, oh yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. John says that doesn't, that doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense. You can't do that. Okay? And, and I listen, I know that's a lot. I, I know that's a lot to take in. I know. But, but it's the truth. He sets us free. He sets us free. Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. You don't have to give in. That's all I'm saying to you. Remember these words? You read these words in John chapter 8, verse 36. If the Son sets you free, what? You shall be free indeed. Okay, here we go. I know that's a lot to take in. I got one more idea that I want to share with you uh, this morning and uh, some stuff off of that. But let's go to the third one. There is a responsibility because of whose we are. There's the reality. I'm a child of God. That's unbelievable. There's a resemblance. I should begin to take on his characteristics. I should begin to look. In my, and clearly in the context, John is talking about the moral behavior. There is more, God has moral standards, and I should live by those. So there should be a resemblance in my life. But also there is a responsibility. Now, I, I won't, it goes from latter part of verse 10 all the way through the end of the chapter. I don't have time to read it all this morning. Um, but let me just at least read some of it. Um, he says, nor the one who does not, here it is, Love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then he goes on and he talks about Cain. So not the way Cain loved, where he was jealous and, and murdered his brother and, and that sort of thing. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love, verse 16, by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love, look at this, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. This is the responsibility that we have. And, and John, John is, is making it clear that it's, that it's not just, it's not just not doing bad things. It's not just doing immoral things, okay? Not doing those immoral things. You understand what I'm saying? He, he's, he's moving into a new area where he says, yes, your moral conduct ought to line up with God's. There ought to be a resemblance to God in your life. 
but it's not just not doing those certain immoral things. Let me be honest with you. I have known people in churches that would consider themselves morally good, upstanding people. They would say, well, I, I, I don't do that, or I wouldn't do that, or I, as the old saying goes, I don't smoke or chew or go with the girls that do. <laughs> right? I, I have known people, and, and listen, there are people in the, in, in the church, there are people in the world who, who are morally good people. There are people of different religions around the world that understand the destructive nature of, of, of lying in a family unit or society or whatever, that understand the destructive nature of, of murder or covetousness or greed or uh, uh, sexual conduct outside the confines of marriage. There are, you can find people, maybe not as many as there used to be, but you can find people that are morally good. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're part of the family of God. As I said, I, I've known some people in church that, that would be fine, morally upstanding citizens. They, they'd get voted into the Kiwanis Club first time through. But some of those people have been some of the meanest, some of the most unloving people that I have ever known. See, it's love. That's the responsibility. It's love. It's love. What's the responsibility? Well, that was really enthusiastic. What's the responsibility? Love. To act loving towards all people, sure. But in this context, without question, it is love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. It is love for the body of Christ. That's what he's talking about here. That that is the responsibility that we have. And let me give you a couple different aspects of, of this love. Let me, let me get, bring it up to you. Love reveals our place in God's family. That's what it's, it's one of the evidences. Yes, my moral standard, my conduct should be according to God's law. But I've known people that have had a moral standard that would, why well, I never, right? Y'all met some of them people, right? That morally, but John says, that's, that's not all. It's not just not doing the stuff God wouldn't want you to do. It's doing the stuff God would want you to do. And what God wants you to do is love because love reveals this family relationship that you have with him. Look at it again, verse 14 and 15 from the New Living Translation. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murders don't have eternal life within them. By the way, that doesn't mean that a person who commits murder can't be forgiven and discover the grace of God. That's not what he's saying is the person that's, that practices a lifestyle of hate, of, 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 even if it's just, I mean, literal physical murder or just hate in their heart. So that, that, that's, not, that's, not the king, that's not the people of God. That's not how they act. I've met some of those people. I've met some of them in a pew. No, that, that's, that's not it. They're, it reveals... That we are part of this family of God in our willingness to love one another. So it, it, it reveals this. It, it shows this to be true. But let me give you another one. It requires our possession for God's family. This is the harder one. <laughs> Not only is it evidence that I really do belong to God, but this love that God's talking about, it requires our possessions. It really does. Uh, look at it in verse 16 and, uh, through 18. We know what true love looks like. He, we, we've got an example. It's what John says. We know what true love looks like because of Jesus. He gave his life for us, and he calls us to give our lives for our brothers and sisters. Does, that's a modern translation right there, but do I need to translate that further? 
Early, y'all, y'all are a pretty sharp group. I think y'all probably get that, don't you? He gave his life for us, and he calls us to give our lives for our brothers and sisters. If a person owns the kinds of things we need to make it in this world, but refuses to share with those in need, is it even possible that God lives in him? John says, are you serious? My little children, don't just talk about love as an idea or a theory. And that's what we do at church, right? Oh, yes, blessed with the people. We love God. God loves us. We love... Don't just talk about love as an idea or a theory. Make it your true way of life. And I love the way this finishes. And live in the pattern of gracious love. Gracious love. Can I, I, you know this because we define this all the time. Gracious love. Thanks of the other person before it thinks of you. Before you think of you. Gracious love sacrifices for the other person. Now, that doesn't mean... If I can't pay my cable bill, that you should pay my cable bill. What that means is I shouldn't have cable if I can't pay my cable bill. You understand what I'm, you understand what I'm saying to you? Understand what he's saying here. What it does mean is that if, if you have nothing to eat and I have something to eat, I should share it with you. What it does mean if you, is that if you have no way to get to work or to the doctor or to the wherever and I have a car, I have a means of transportation, I should help you get there. Even if it inconveniences me, even if it costs me gas, even if I do it. Why? Because that's what love does. See, John says, it's it's not just the the stuff you shouldn't do. Whoop-de-doo, yes, look like Christ, be godly in your life. But that includes learning how to love people the way he loves people, and he loves people sacrificially what that should mean is that if you don't have a place to sleep tonight and i do have a place i should take you into my home and provide for you because that's who we are because that's what we do that's what love looks like that's what the body of christ does to each other i understand in our american context it doesn't have as much of an impact as it would have in the day john wrote this see you see in the day john wrote this To declare yourself a follower of Jesus meant almost certainly uh, rejection by your family, never to see them again. It meant be thrown out of your home, especially if you were a woman or a child, to be thrown out of your home, to have nowhere to go, to literally be living on the street. And so this has real world application for these people. But can I remind you that that there can be some real world application, even, even among us Americans. And let's face it, most of us have everything we need. We may not have everything we want, but most of us have everything we need. But it does mean if you're sick or if you're laid up and you, and, and, you can't, and you can't clean your house and it's driving you crazy, I ought to be there to clean your house. And, and listen, let me just finish it up. Extend it past that, okay? He's certainly talking about the body of Christ. But it doesn't just have to be the local body, okay? It's the church, universal. Believers all over the world that could benefit from what we have and how we can bless them and encourage them and, and act towards them in a way that will glorify God and, and benefit their lives and grow the kingdom of God. I'm going to give you two specific examples, okay? One, in the month of November, we are going to be promoting the, uh, the uh, Samaritan's Purse Operation Christmas Child. We'll be promoting that in the month of November. Quite honestly, every family, quite honestly, virtually every single person in this church 
should prepare a shoebox for, for a boy or a girl and should pay the $9. I think it's $9 this year. It went up from 7 finally to 9 And pay the $9 to send that box somewhere into the world to some child that will receive it and not only receive gifts and all that fun stuff that they have so much fun with, but can hear the gospel and have an opportunity to be introduced to Jesus and to know him. Every single one of us ought to do that. And, and if you don't know what Operation Christmas Child is, don't worry, we'll be promoting it in the month of November. But it's what we ought to do. Let me give you another example. In the month of December, we will be promoting the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. The Lottie Moon Christmas offering is an offering taken up uh, yearly to help fund missionaries serving all over, literally all over the world. In the month of December, I'm going to stand up here and perhaps others will stand up here and I'm going to ask you to give sacrificially. That may sound strange to some people, but sacrificially because that's what Jesus did. He gave his all. And that's what exactly what he Here's your model. I'm going to ask you to give sacrificially above and beyond your tithe. Please don't take it out of your tithe. I need to pay my cable bill. <laughs> to give sacrificially above and beyond so that the gospel can go to further reaches in the world. And so that more people can hear the good news of Jesus. That's who we are. That's what we do. Should I have a resemblance? Should I look like him in my moral conduct, my code, my actions? Absolutely. But I also have a responsibility to love you and you and you and you and you and for you to love me. By the way, can I just say this and then we'll close. Sometimes that requires us being willing to be honest with each other and say, listen, here's a need I have in my life. Because we don't do that. Oh, heaven forbid we should ever let anybody know that we're imperfect or or we have a need in our life. But it requires that uh, because of, because we're family, we can pick up the phone and say, listen, I, I am in trouble here. I have got to get to work and my battery would not start this morning. And can, can you give me a ride? Sure, I can. Be right there. Listen, I have, I have no idea what God, what all God wants, will or wants to do in this body that is Cross Culture Church in the, in the next few weeks or months or years. I have no idea what all he w- wants to do, but I absolutely know what he expects of us. He expects us to resemble him, to look like him with our life. It's tough, right? world is pouring stuff at us and saying, hey, act this way, do this, have this conduct. And God's law says, here's here's what's right, here's what's wrong. And I have a responsibility to love the body of Christ here, there, and everywhere, all over the world, for the glory of God. That's what it means to call ourselves a child of God. Thanks, Pastor. As we heard today, when we are truly a child of God, there will be a family resemblance. Our actions and moral standards will look like God's. As Pastor Clay explained, it doesn't mean we are perfect, but we should become more like Christ as we grow in our understanding of Him. But as we also heard, it's not just about the do's and don'ts. We also have a responsibility to love each other as God loves us. Demonstrating His love is one of the ways we show that we are a part of the family of God. Sometimes our love costs us, but that's when our love looks most like the love of God. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere and celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross-culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. A community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person. Real people who truly care. Solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens. And the most energetic, safe, and fun kids program around. 
Find out more at crossculturelife.org. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church in North Rollins. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.